This podcast is supported by a grant from Santa Fe Regeneron. Welcome to this podcast series from the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. My name is Jerry Lee, and this is the final part of our three-part series entitled Severe Pediatric Asthma. In this episode, we will discuss therapies for severe pediatric asthma with our guests, Dr. William Anderson and Dr. Princess Abagu. Dr. Anderson is an associate professor of pediatrics at Children's Hospital Colorado and University of Colorado School of Medicine and is board certified in pediatrics, internal medicine, and allergy immunology. At Children's Hospital Colorado, Dr. Anderson is the director of the Multidisciplinary Asthma Clinic, co-director of the Improving Pediatric to Adult Care Transition Program, and his clinical and scholarly interests include difficult to treat and severe asthma, technology and medicine, including electronic medication monitoring, and the transition from pediatric to adult care. And Dr. Abagu is the director of the Division of Pediatric Allergy, Immunology, and Rheumatology at University Hospitals Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital in Cleveland, Ohio. Dr. Abagu completed her residency in internal medicine and her subspecialty training in allergy immunology at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland. Her clinical research interests are in eosinophilic disorders and health disparities. Bill and Princess, thank you again for joining us again on Allergy Talk. Thank you so much for having us, Jerry. Thank you, Jerry. Okay, well, you know, we spent the first two episodes discussing the burden disease, discussing the workup of the patient uncontrolled despite high-dose inhaled steroid long-acting beta agonist. We've confirmed the diagnosis. We addressed adherence, technique comorbid factors, my goodness, we even address their environment. So now that we have the diagnosis of severe asthma, I hear a lot about endotypes and phenotypes. What do we know about that in children? So Jerry, endotypes and phenotypes are ways that we've used more recently to categorize asthma. And phenotypes are really just the broad categorizations of asthma. So they help us describe the type of asthma patient that we are seeing. And so we look at the different features like age, we look at severity, we look at triggers, we look at comorbidities. And so you can have a patient who has more allergic triggers or exercise-induced triggers those children that have asthma that is associated with URIs or those that are associated with comorbid obesity. So the way that the phenotypes have been really identified are through multicenter cluster analyses. We have much more information about asthma phenotypes in adult patients than in pediatric patients. So programs like the Severe Asthma Research Program or the UBRIOPRED study, which is a multicenter European study, really looked at these phenotypes through cluster analyses. But there is also the Intercity Asthma Consortium Asthma Phenotype Study, the APIC study that looked at these phenotypes specifically in children. And really, generally, this is broken down into those that have allergic asthma and those that don't have allergic asthma. And so these can really range from patients that are really minimally symptomatic and have normal lung function, normal lung physiology, and have very low levels of what we would consider allergic inflammation to those who are really, really impaired and very allergic. And so phenotypes, I guess, are really just to me, they're adjectives, they're really descriptive for patients, specifically the children. And now we've started to break them down into endotypes. And the endotypes are really those who are more allergic, so the more T2 driven, which are much more common in children. And then those that are the non-T2 driven endotypes. So those are the non-allergic and really 
I feel like that's more of a diagnosis of exclusion. You're looking for all of the measures that you look for inflammation, like sputum analysis for eosinophils or pheno, IgE levels or allergic sensitization. And if you don't have those, then you get put into a non-T2 type category. So these are just all ways that we can describe asthma better, especially in those children and get closer to getting to more of a precision medicine approach, especially for those that have a severe asthma, particularly in the pediatric population. So, Pristoff, what do you think are the most helpful biomarkers if we were going to sort of dive in in classifying a severe asthma patient? So, I think what we've learned are that our biomarkers are not great. They're not particularly helpful. They let us put them perhaps in a category of T2 versus non-T2, but these can be significantly impacted. So think of all the biomarkers that we look at, like pheno or sputum eosinophils. These are all impacted by use of oral corticosteroids, which a lot of these children are on if they have hard-to-control asthma. So our biomarkers are really not foolproof. We still need better biomarkers, but they just give us a little bit of information that helps us put together, I think, the pieces of the pie, which are really multifactorial in these patients and these children. So, Okay. So before we get into the biologic therapies, you know, I see a lot of variability about how severe asthma is treated. So I'd love to start about inhalers. I've seen different things like single main reliever therapy. I've seen some pulmonologists give a child a second inhaled steroid or a long-acting muscular antagonist. Bill, what do you think about those different therapies in the severe asthma patients? There's been a lot of great data that's come out showing the advantage of single maintenance and reliever therapy, otherwise known as smart therapy, in our school-age children and adolescents, as well as adults. For those of you who are not familiar with this therapy, essentially what it is is you have a ICS LABA, which the LABA is for Motorol, so because it is a quick-acting bronchodilator that this medication can be used both as their controller therapy. So for example, if it is a two puffs twice a day regimen, as well as their rescue therapy as needed throughout the day. And what the studies have shown is that potentially using this smart therapy can reduce overall steroid exposure compared to using a higher dose steroid, but just using it two puffs twice daily, for example. So in this way, you're potentially sparing children some of the greater steroid exposure while also helping to control their asthma. So that is one potential option. And with that, it does vary based on GINA and NHLBI step guidelines of when you may want to instituting SMART. So for example, this would be usually on step three or four for NHLBI and patients that are five and older. You mentioned another potential inhaled medication that we can use, which is a long-acting muscarinic antagonist, such as teotropium. And this has been, not approved, but has been included in the NHLBI guidelines for step five and higher in patients 12 and older. And once again, this is another medication that can result in a bronchodilator response and potentially help to prevent us needing to continue to increase the inhaled corticosteroids that we're giving to patients. 
Okay, so thanks, Bill. And Princess, well, let's talk about systemic therapies. And again, in the age of biologic therapies, I know there's sort of different ideas about the role of systemic therapies, you know, leukotriene receptor antagonists. I've seen low dose azithromycin. Heck, I mean, I have some colleagues who used to do or still do like intramuscular transcendental or low dose corticosteroids. As of 2023, what's the approach of those therapies for severe asthma? So just as Bill said, these are definitely included in the guidelines, but I usually have a lot of patients that come to me on leukotriene receptor antagonists, and it's very surprising to me that no one's ever talked to them about the black box warning on them. And so they can be added, but I like to take into account the mental health aspect that potentially could be there for mood changes and agitation and even suicidal ideation in adolescence. And so I think this is all part of shared decision-making once you start adding on some of these other oral therapies. There's less data on addition of azithromycin, but it has been successful and what has been published, but definitely not as much widespread data. When we go back and think about other therapies, as we talked about the phenotypes and the endotypes in the non-T2 patients, especially those who have the neutrophilic or prostigranulocytic kind of phenotype, bronchial thermoplasty has been used, but not for pediatrics. So this is generally an option for patients who are 18 or above. So I think that we have these oral therapies, but we have much better therapies that we've talked about that are much more targeted and specific. And our general guideline is we want to try to avoid corticosteroids or low-dose frequent corticosteroids, and you want to consider more of a targeted approach in these patients. Yeah, I definitely have seen that trend away from corticosteroids. And again, I think that's our patients prefer that as well. So I think this is the time to really dive in on these immune-based or biologic therapies. So Bill, I know there's been changes on the landscape of these biologics in terms of different ages. So again, as of 2023, what's the current landscape for pediatric biologic therapies for severe asthma? Currently, in 2023, when we're recording this, there are five biologics that are FDA-approved for patients who are less than 18 years of age. There's omalizumab, which is approved for patients six years and older, mepolizumab for patients six years and older, Dupilumab is approved for age six and older for asthma, but there is younger indications for atopic dermatitis. Benralizumab, which is approved for patients 12 years of age and older, and tezapilumab, which is approved for patients 12 years of age and older. So we have a lot of options in different ages. So that's one consideration. But I think, you know, I run a lot of continuing medical education programs, and the number one request (laughs) by attendees is more information about biologic selection. So I'm sure there's a lot of different approaches. And so I'd love to hear both of your approaches. So Princess, let's start with you. If you're going to select a biologic, how is your approach in selecting the right one for your patient? So this is a really frequently asked question, and patients even ask this, and parents, why would you suggest this one, or what do you think is the best? The true answer is there. there is really no magic formula to this in each family, each patient. It's going to be a very individual shared decision-making process. I think we take the bits of information that we have and that we understand. So we think about whether they're allergic or non-allergic. We think about the biomarkers that we may have. So their IgE levels, what they're sensitized to. We think about their comorbidities. And we also think about how much medication they're requiring. And then you sort of 
put it all together and come up with an idea or a recommendation, what might be the best for your patient. Because, and Bill mentioned this, that there are other indications for some of these biologics, sometimes a helpful approach, but not the only approach would be to think about what other concomitant disorders they have. So if it's someone with severe atopic dermatitis, is there a biologic that might address this along with their asthma or EOE and their asthma or chronic urticaria and their asthma? So sometimes thinking about the other comorbidities may point you in that direction of what might be best. But then we also consider things like compliance. And do you need to have this as an observed therapy that's happening in the office or can the family do this at home? thinking about side effects? Is it something they can tolerate? So my biggest thing is there's not a one-size-fits-all approach. And sometimes you have to pivot. Um, You may try an approach and that might not be the right one for the patient and the family for a variety of reasons. And so the nice thing is that this field has really exploded in terms of our options. And then now we're just trying to narrow down to figure out which one is the best for each patient. And we really don't have head-to-head comparisons. We really just have more indirect analyses. And so more work needs to be done in that area, in my opinion. Bill, how about your approach? Do you consider anything in addition to what Princess mentioned? I think Princess and I employ a similar approach to these biologics, thinking about Obviously, do they have the biomarkers that show that they're going to be more likely to respond to one versus another? I want to make sure I'm maximizing that a patient will get a benefit out of this. Thinking about those comorbid conditions, can I get a two-for-one deal out of it, for lack of a better term? So for example, if a patient has chronic idiopathic urticaria, as well as asthma, maybe a medication like omolizumab might be great for them. We also think a lot about the logistical aspects of this. So for families, is it easier for them to get it administered in the office or at home? So not only is it, do we want to observe the therapy, but is it going to make them more likely to get the therapy if they can easily administer it in their own home? There's also some families out there that don't really like the idea of having to give their child a shot, even with as much education as you can provide them. So they might come into the office for that administration. And finally, as Princess mentioned, was the side effect profile. Obviously, parents are very concerned about what are the potential effects of this on their child beyond just their asthma. Is there anything they also need to be looking for? And a lot of patients also ask about long-term safety data on these medications as well, which for some of these drugs, we have more evidence than others, but we have a frank conversation about that and show what the studies have demonstrated thus far in terms of safety for patients. That came up a couple of times in the earlier podcast that these drugs are considered new. And I think sometimes a parent may say something like, I don't want my kid to be a guinea pig or that sort of thing. So is whatever would be the talking points to address some of the concerns about biologic use in parents or some resources for us to address their concerns? So there have been several review articles that have been published, and we'll include some of these in our resources for this podcast, that have highlighted what are the primary or most common side effects that have been demonstrated in these patients. For most of these drugs, the common side effects are relatively minimal, headache, upper respiratory infections, kind of feeling a little bit like cold or fluish on the days you're getting it. But obviously, some have a higher risk of side effects than others. For example, omalizumab has a chance of anaphylaxis, thereby necessitating or recommending that we do the first three doses in the office prior to moving home. 
And then in terms of other studies, there have been long-ranging studies, especially on a drug like omelizumab, which has been around for 20 years on potential cancer risk, which has been shown not to be existent. For other drugs that have been maybe around for only five or 10 years, we can share with the families the evidence that we do have that's available either in the clinical studies or in some real-world studies that have since been published. But I think the biggest thing to keep in mind here is just having an open dialogue with the family, letting them know what is the available evidence that we have for it, both for a drug and maybe the risk of a drug, and then helping them in that shared decision-making process. No, thank you for that. I think it's really important that we make sure we're addressing the parents' needs and concerns. And I do know that side effects comes up as a concern. I think the only other question about biologics that comes up is also, is this working? So, you know, we start a biologic and I wasn't sure if there's a certain time frame or goal for success. What would be the expectations that you'd like to see when you start a therapy like that? And you and the patient suggest that this is the right therapy for the patient or we should switch to another therapy. Uh, Princess, I wasn't sure if you wanted to start with that. Sure. So I would look at it the same way that we look at any other asthma therapy. So our goal is really to prevent morbidity. We want to make sure that these kids are not having exacerbations. They're not requiring a lot of rescue medication use. They're not missing school. They're able to kind of learn and function and play and do their sports. And so sort of look at it as a holistic picture. Are they able to now have a better and more improved quality of life once they've started this new therapy? And so I look at it in the same way that we look when we step up therapy. We usually step up because we say, no, we're not quite there yet. They're still having issues. We're not quite there yet. And so that's the same way that we would really look at how well or how efficacious these biologics are. Are we seeing the morbidity and are we seeing the quality of life improvements, decrease in morbidity and improvement in quality of life improvements, I should say. So I would add also that in terms of a time frame, families often ask, is my child going to be on this medicine forever? And that is a pretty important question for them. And so I say to them, let's take this first three to six months on this medication, make sure it's working for you. If it's not working for you, we're not going to continue medication that's not working. If it is working, let's reevaluate yearly with the idea of ultimately trying to step down on our controller therapies similar to any other asthma therapy in a step up or step down fashion with it. Also, I think it's very important whenever you are starting a biologic, that this is not a set it and forget it situation. You want to make sure that you're continually going back to see whether or not a patient needs this medication or not. Not only because it's a burden on the family to continue to give a medication that they may not no longer need, but also it directly impacts the cost effectiveness of care. If you're able to make sure that you're getting the medication to the patient who needs it, for the time period that they need it, it makes these medicines much more cost-effective than if you are just going out with a broad approach in terms of who gets this medication and how long they stay on it. So now we're going to open Pandora's box because now I'm curious about the tapering of the medicine, right? You mentioned that forever thing. I think one approach, and I'm not sure if this is required, is that people have thought of biologics as a bridge to desensitization like immunotherapy or so on. What's your experience on tapering biologics? Is there a sort of a good approach on when to do that and the best way to do that? So from my perspective, I will emphasize that there, to my knowledge, there are no definitive ways that are recommended that this is how you have to taper down a medicine. I want to make sure that my patient has had good control of their asthma for at least a year. 
And then I have a conversation with the family about, do we want to continue this or do we want to potentially step it down, recognizing that if they have loss of control, we may then need to step up their controller therapy again. And one approach that I've taken is first just spacing the dosing interval for the medicine. So for example, if I have a patient who is on every two-week dupilumab, I then maybe space them to every three weeks for a period of time, see if they get well-controlled, and then space them to every four weeks. I would like to emphasize that this is not FDA-approved, and, and this is just my personal experience with it. But I would love to hear what Princess is doing in her experience with tapering down these biologics. I think it's very similar. I think we have the most experience probably with chronic spontaneous urticaria where patients have been on Zolaire, they're well controlled, and then we take some time and taper them off of it and see if they can maintain that control. Asthma in children, it's tricky because their natural history may be very different. And I don't think we feel that people ever technically outgrow, but they may change. They may become less symptomatic over time, depending on their exposures. We talked earlier in the series about social determinants of health. If you live in a home that has mice and cockroaches, and that's predominantly what's driving your asthma, you get it under control even with the biologic, but you also move. That might make a big difference and that might not be a patient that needs to remain on a step-up therapy and you might start stepping them down. So I really think of it as much more of a whole patient and whole situation approach, looking at all the different factors, looking at their different exposures, looking at what their adherence has been like, because sometimes that might be the only thing that they are going to be particularly adherent with and that's what's keeping the lid on the pot. And then really having a discussion and saying, you know, is this a good time to come off? It may not be a good time to come off in the wintertime, even if they've done great for a year, because they historically may be a child that has always exacerbated during cold and flu season. So take all the different factors into account and then really think of a good time that we might take a pause or start stretching out to see how that child does. Um, there is no defined approach to it. And I think it really depends on each and every Every situation. Princess, I think you bring up a good point in terms of what happens in the winter. So we have some evidence from the Inner City Asthma Consortium studies that you could potentially use a biologic like omalizumab just for a short period of time during their peak season. So for example, in this study, they used omalizumab leading into the school year for children that would frequently have viral-induced exacerbations, continued it on through the school year, and then had a break over the spring and summer. Now, mind you, we don't have similar studies on other biologics to show whether that has been beneficial, but that could also be a potential strategy to reduce exposure to the biologics overall or potentially use them for a short period of time. So I want to tell both of you that I did a survey before Journal Club about, you know, I'm very interested in this choosing a biologic question and a list of different biologics and what you would start and your considerations. A significant number of people who attended the session said a consideration biologic was access. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about access. So I think I have a wonderful nurse who helps me. Um, a majority of her time is discussing with insurance companies approval. So I'd love to have your thoughts on what's the best way that you can optimize success in getting biologic access for your patient. What is your sort of success? Because this is very, I have to say, frustrating for my staff members. And I'm sure you might have some tips on how to make this best for our patients to make sure they're getting the medications that they need. I can start with that. So prior authorizations are really difficult for every allergy practice. 
as we see more of the biologics become available and multiple indications become approved, I think it's even harder because we've seen now that insurance companies sometimes select what they consider to be their first line biologic to use independent of what you may think based on your assessment of the biomarkers and the other conditions surrounding the patient. And so sometimes it's not easy and they may need to, quote, fail biologic before they can go on to another one. But one of the strategies really is looking at those comorbid conditions because sometimes many of these patients obviously have atopic dermatitis. They may have asthma. They may have other conditions that are approved and getting the biologic approved through way of the comorbid condition sometimes is the better strategy because oftentimes there may be only one biologic approved for that condition. But it's really tricky. There's no really great way to do it. And I think that this becomes no different than your inhaler choice and lots of other aspects of asthma care that are really dictated by some of the insurance plans and what's preferred and what's not preferred. And we'll continue to see that because these are quite expensive medications. From my perspective, I would agree with Princess that leveraging the comorbid conditions could be very beneficial. And then also making sure that you're getting appropriate biomarkers in advance to demonstrate whether a patient may or may not respond to a particular biologic can help with your case to insurance companies. But I think Princess does bring up a great point that we are now heading down this same pathway as with the inhaled corticosteroids, where my fellows ask me, well, which is the best one? And I tell them, the one the patient can get and can take. And so that may be the direction that we're going to be going in with these biologics moving ahead. Well, again, I think we're at the end of this amazing three-part series. I really appreciate your sharing all your expertise here. So I'd love to spend just the last moment talking about the future of severe pediatric asthma. Princess, we'll start with you. What do you think would be the next steps we individually or as a specialty should be doing to address the challenges? Since, again, in the first episode, we mentioned that this is still continues to be a problem year after year. Yeah, so I think that we really need to take a step back as a specialty and say, okay, now in 2023, how are we approaching these children? How are we looking at their entire situation? So pulling in the social determinants of health. So going back to the first episode where we talked about the disproportionate burden on underserved minority children, we really need to look at the impact of the living environment. And this is a struggle for all of medicine for us to really impact some of the things that happen outside of our clinic walls. So what a child may be exposed to, whether it's indoor cigarette smoke, whether their pets, their pests, their poor living conditions, but really integrating our medical approach with more of a societal approach so that we can really get patients the help that they need. It's really heartbreaking when a patient cannot get a medication because they purely can't afford it or they cannot get to a visit because they don't have the transportation. Some of the technology may help, but there still is a digital divide that we don't really talk about as much as we should. And so not every patient has the same access to all of the new technologies that allow us to better manage asthma. And so I think that as we are moving 
through the biologic pathways of figuring out exactly which endotypes are there and which medications might be most helpful, really also looking at that whole picture and figuring out how we as a medical society can impact some of these other social determinants that truly, I think, make or break whether a patient's going to do well or not. And I think we've always felt powerless to approach these the way that they need to be approached. So I think that's going to be more the future of severe asthma care is integrating some of the societal factors into the biologic factors so that we can approach this really from a 360 degree approach. Oh, I completely agreed. Bill, what would you add to that and how we can address the problem of severe asthma? Yeah, I think the biologics give us a great opportunity to actually have medicines that impact the underlying pathophysiology that is causing asthma. And to this extent, I think we're going to potentially see these medications maybe be moved sooner and sooner into the care of our patient population. Now, to make that happen, first, we need to demonstrate benefit that these medications can be efficacious in these younger patients. So I think it's worthwhile to have additional studies of biologics in pediatric patients. Oftentimes, We start with patients 12 and older and then slowly work our way down. But given the substantial burden of pediatric asthma, it would be worthwhile to address this sooner. You also have examples that Wanda Pippitkanical mentioned in our previous talks about the PARC study that is exploring to see whether or not this early intervention could potentially interrupt the natural course of asthma or potentially alter it. And then finally, as these medications potentially move down to sooner in practice, we need to think a little bit about the cost effectiveness of these medications and how can we make them be more routinely available for our patients, both in terms of cost and access. Well, yeah, that's really, really exciting to see how we could potentially prevent severe asthma from happening to begin with. And again, I do agree with you about the access issue. It's something we'll continue to work on. So this was a really, really interesting interesting three-part series. I learned a lot personally. Thank you so much for joining us in this conversation. And again, if you want to have further access to some of the resources we mentioned, we do have a website, education.acaai.org slash asthma. And again, we'd love your thoughts and your feedback. Please email us. The email is algaetalkoneword at acaai.org with some of your comments and ideas. I'd love to have this conversation. We might even make a Doc Matter page. The college has an app where we can have further conversations after each podcast episode. If you like what you've heard, please rate us on iTunes. And of course, the rest of our episodes for Algae Talk are hosted on the website, college.acaai.org slash Algae Talk. So that's the end. My name is Jerry Lee for the American College of Algae, Asthma, and Immunology. I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. <laughs>